Our psalm of the day can be found in Psalm 24, a psalm extolling the greatness of our great God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 12. We are reading verses 12 through 36. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather in your presence on this Palm Sunday, we remember the procession of our Lord Jesus in which he proceeds to a cross to suffer for the sins of the world. Give us understanding, illuminate us in heart and mind, and teach us this morning all that you have revealed in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite novels that you've heard me refer to on many different occasions is John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. It's, a 19, it's about a family, the Joad family in the 1930s during the Dust Bowl. They lived in Oklahoma, and because of the drought, they lose their entire farm. And so the family, in a desperation, receives mail and sees postings that there's work in California. So something like the Clampett family, they load up all of their possessions onto the family truck. Grandmother was even strapped to the roof on top of a mattress, and they drive to California. They drive for days upon days. Of course, progress was slow, and they settle themselves in squatter tenement communities that popped up along the road. They would scrap there for food, and people in the squatter settlements would be very generous with them. But as the story unfolds, there's tragedy after tragedy, crisis after crisis. Just when you don't think it can get any worse, it does. The Jode family daughter, Rose of Sharon, was recently married, and she was pregnant. She discovers this on the trip. That presents its own crisis because there was so little food. And so members of the family were attempting to give their portion to her so that she would be strong enough to bear the child. Everything does not get better when they arrive in California. All the promises that seemed to, uh, to be lying ahead of them were not realized. There wasn't a great deal of work. There was difficulty, and then there was spring flooding. Rose of Sharon, during that flooding, has a miscarriage. Everything just seems absolutely lost. It's late in the pregnancy. And to add insult to her injury, her milk for nursing actually comes in. And it's one of the saddest moments in all of literature that I can remember, thinking of this woman's suffering, having just lost a child late into the pregnancy, and then she has to deal with that. And Steinbeck is asking us the question, what is the value of suffering? What is the purpose of it? What is the meaning of it? And he drives it home with a particular point. And Jesus' disciples were somewhat in the same situation. Also, the crowds that were gathered around Jesus because he began towards the end of his ministry making it very clear that this triumphal procession was going to end in his death. He uses the language that the Son of Man was going to be lifted up. And they obviously understood what this meant. In verse 33, 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, for the first century Jews, a crucified Messiah was a failed Messiah. What was the point of Jesus saying that he was going to suffer? What was the meaning of it? There couldn't be any possible meaning. There couldn't be any possible significance. He was crazy. He was deranged. This is surely wrong. And John gives us several different clues that the disciples, along with the crowds, were not understanding Jesus. If you look in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. He goes on to quote from the book of Isaiah to say that the people were blind, that though seeing Jesus, they were not truly seeing him. They were not understanding who he was and what he came to accomplish. What would be the point of suffering? Why would he want to be a Messiah like that? That could not be the true Messiah. And what happens in the Gospel of John is that he offers to rework our perception of events, that he wants to work down in us a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he comes to do. And he's inviting us to see all of these events from a very different platform in a very different way. And there's three things specifically this morning that we'll see about this Jesus that John is attempting to rework for us truths that he wants to massage deep into the character of who we are as Jesus' disciples. But here's the first, the first change in perception that John seeks to accomplish, accomplish. First, we are invited into the significance of Jesus' cross. We are invited to see that the cross is the defining moment of history. But less abstract, we are invited to see that the cross is the defining moment of your life and my life. You see Jesus pick up this language in verse 23. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He once again refers to the hour in verses 27 and 28. And these are not the first time that these words have been on Jesus' lips in the Gospel of John. In fact, it appears some 26 times where Jesus is speaking of his hour. It begins in chapter 2 and verse 4 where Mary asks Jesus to work a miracle, and he says, my hour has not come. And then there comes this growing awareness that he's arriving at the hour. But he continues to push it off, say, my hour has not come. And now at a very climatic moment, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is signaling something to us. And it's not just that this is the climatic event in Jesus' life. The way that the language is used by John, he is saying that, no, this is the climatic moment in the history of the world. This is the hour. He's referring, of course, to Jesus' passion, his death, He's referring to Jesus' resurrection. He's referring to Jesus' ascension, not literally just one hour, but a period of compressed time, the most significant thing that goes on in the history of the world, the moment that gives definition to all other moments. 
Jesus says, now is my soul troubled in verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is his whole purpose was to arrive in this moment, the most significant moment in all of creation in order to accomplish the purposes of God. You notice that Jesus doesn't pray, Father, save me from this hour. He asks the question, should I pray that way? He says, no, for this purpose I've arrived at this hour, Father, glorify your name. And this is the significance of the moment, that Jesus does not request to be saved in order that he could be the savior of many. This is what the grain of wheat does when it falls into the ground and dies, is it brings forth life for many, many others that otherwise could not have that life. This is what Jesus is saying the significance of his hour is, and that we are to define and understand all of life from that moment. We're invited into a new way of seeing life and the world. Now, our tendency as fallen, broken, sinful people is that we define our lives by various things. Sometimes we're defined by events that happen to us. And those events are so strong and formative that they shape and direct our lives, and perhaps they do so most powerfully when we're not even aware of it. But some of us are defined by things that happen to us out of our control. Some people define themselves by their accomplishments. That is the strength of what they can do. They seem to move from one accomplishment to the next, and they find their identity in their ability to succeed. Some people are going to define themselves by their guilt or by their failures. They'll simply understand life in light of that, of what they didn't do or what they didn't accomplish, and that will mark them. It defines them. Others define themselves by a sense of comparison. That is, they are always looking at others and attempting to measure up and having to put them down or praise themselves in order to feel right and good, but it is a sense of comparison by which they define their lives. And some are simply defined by fear of the unknown, the uncertainty of life, and so they live grasped by that, seized by them, uncertain of what is to come. But friends, it's all of this that represents the world and its thinking. All of these are ways of self-understanding that don't reflect the cross of Jesus. And that Jesus offers us something different. When he arrives at the end of the gospel and he says, it is finished, what Jesus is announcing is that the world and all of its ways are done. That they've all been exhausted. And that what Jesus wants to orient us to is to finding an understanding of ourselves through his hour. That this most significant event, this most significant accomplishment done by him is what gives definition to your life and to your days. It's not what someone else did to you. It's not what you did not accomplish. It's not what you did accomplish. That those are all moments and hours in your life, but they're not definitive. And they need to be overwritten. They need to be, trans, they need to, they need to be overcome 
by this definitive accomplishment of Jesus, this hour that he enters into on our behalf. That's the first thing that we find as we deal with Jesus on the way to the cross as to what his sufferings were about was about offering us a new understanding, a new central moment in life to draw our self-understanding around, his hour. Second piece, though, is that we are invited into the purpose of the cross. And that the purpose of the cross, Jesus plainly tells us in verse 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And that the purpose of the cross is redemption. And not just redemption for a few, a small band of Jewish disciples. But rather, Jesus says he will draw all people to himself. And this means all kinds of people. Already back in chapter 10, he has stated that he has sheep that are not of this fold. Saying that his people go beyond ethnic Israel. Which so many of his fellow Israelites wanted to lock him up and keep him as their own possession. But rather, he says he's the savior of the world. You note that right after he rides into the city, a group of Greeks come and ask the question, and it's a beautiful question. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And this is us being invited into the multi-ethnic character of God's family that he's building through Christ that it's not a family built on accomplishment and achievement. It's not built on social class or ethnicity. That Jesus, as the one who comes to suffer, to be lifted up, is now building a family that's rooted in him. That he comes to take judgment upon himself. That he comes to receive our just reward, and he takes that into his own body. And because he does so, we can be united with God, that we can be forgiven and and brought into God's family. That this is the purpose of the cross. It's important to note the language that Jesus uses in verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And Jesus is identifying our enemy, the devil or Satan. He's the accuser. And the accuser is the one who holds us under the power of sin. But Jesus goes to the cross to be lifted up in order to cast out this wicked ruler, this squatter who's entered into God's good creation and taken control, or at least partially. Jesus comes to throw him out. But when he says that he comes to cast out the rule of this world, we have to remember that Jesus is playing on his words. Turn with me over to John chapter 6. He says that he comes to cast out the ruler of this world. But in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, Jesus comes and accepts judgment on our behalf, and he destroys the power of the devil. He casts him out, and he does so that we would never be cast out, that whoever comes and believes in him would be received and accepted, that we have a hope for being united with God and having relationship with him and standing right in front of him. 
And it's all because of the sufferings of the cross. This is what Jesus wants to rework, is that we now belong to God's family, not on the basis of ethnicity or achievement or any of the other accolades or divisions that we can create, but it stands in Christ and Christ alone that he comes to draw all types of people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation to himself, reconciled to God because of his suffering death on their behalf and because of his promise that he will never cast out those who look to him in faith. We're invited to see that purpose. The final piece to this, though, about the sufferings of Jesus is that we're invited to see the cross as a moment of revelation. We're invited to be witnesses of God revealing his identity, his character, his true nature. We're invited to see that the cross is the revelation of God's glory. Now, Jesus uses two interesting words here that's important to connect, and you've got to allow me to geek out for just a moment. You go with me? It's a short sermon, okay? Verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus has used these words, lifted up, three times through the Gospel of John. You find it in chapter 3, chapter 8, and here again in chapter 12. And so there's something programmatic going on that's signaling us. And then you find that he also uses the word glorified or glory on several different occasions as well. In verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Those are intensely loaded words, especially from the book of the prophet Isaiah. If you turn with me to chapter 52 of that book, in verse 13, Behold my servant, this is the servant of the Lord who was to come, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Actually, in the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Old Testament, that word would be translated, he would be glorified. And so you find there the connection of these two words, of being lifted up, Exalted, he shall be on high, and he shall be glorified. Of course, that's referring to some type of triumph, that the suffering servant was going to come and be triumphant, that he would reign in glory, that he would be successful and victorious. And then if you flip over to chapter 40, you find another connection here in verse 5. This is speaking of the return of God's people from exile and that God himself would come to dwell with the people once again and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, what was going on for in first century Judaism, what they believed was that God was going to come and end the exile one day and he would manifest and reveal his glory amongst his people once again. And that that glory was going to involve a servant who would be a king, a son of David, who was going to come and lead the people. He would be lifted up and exalted. It would have been past strange and challenging when those first century Jews heard that those prophecies were being fulfilled in Jesus. It's what they couldn't accept 
because do you see the turn? Two things going on. The first is that Jesus is saying, no, that that lifting up is being lifted up in humiliation on a cross. That's what it means to be lifted up. That that is my glory. My glory is my shame. My willingness to suffer on behalf of the world. That all types of men can be reconciled to God. The second piece Jesus is saying is that this glory that is to be revealed In chapter 8, he says, I am he. That that manifestation of God that was promised, that what everyone was beholding and witnessing on the cross of Jesus is that I am he. That this is God. That it's a moment of revelation in the history of the world where the hidden and mysterious character of God is fully and publicly made manifest in front of us. That what is God like? He's like this. He's a suffering God. He's one who's been exalted onto a cross in order to suffer for us. That at the heart of God, this is not just what he does. This is who he is. This is who he's revealed himself to be. The one who suffers shame and humiliation, and it's his glory to do so because he's so profoundly for his people. Those whom he set apart before the foundations of the earth that belong to him. That this is God. He is for you. That this is the profound thing that's being written, rewritten, and we're being challenged in our perception to understand about who God is as he's revealed in Jesus. Richard Baucom, he writes this in his book, God Crucified. The God who is high can also be low because God is God not in seeking his own advantage but in self-giving being challenged to understand who God is and that he enters into that suffering in order to display what is at his very heart, a self-giving, sacrificial God. This is who he is. It is interesting with the Rose of Sharon, this woman who obviously shares a name that's related to the name of Jesus in the Bible. But the nights that the flood came and she has her milk come in to nurse a baby who's no longer in the world. Rosa Sharon and her parents go looking for some dry shelter because they were suffering from hypothermia. They were nearly starving. They stumble into a barn where they find a grown man in the corner and his son. The son comes to the family and says, are you the owner of the barn? They say, no, we're not. We're just looking to get dry. He says, my father is there, and he's deeply sick. He's not eaten in six days. He's about to die. And Steinbeck then tells the story that Rose of Sharon asked everyone to leave the room, especially the boy. And then she pulls up next to this man who was frail and dying, and she then nurses him in order to feed him. All of her suffering, all of her pain, all of a sudden, in the last words of Steinbeck's novel, as you felt the weight of the suffering of this family, especially of this woman, it comes into a redemptive play. This is what Steinbeck's right. Steinbeck writes, You go too, she said. There. Her hand moved behind his head and supported it. 
She looked up and across the barn, and her lips came together and smiled mysteriously. That it was a mysterious thing that had happened. In all of her suffering and all of her pain, there came this redemptive accomplishment and moment where this man's life was going to be saved because of her tragedy. And friends, that's what unfolds in front of us in John chapter 12. And Jesus is not ashamed to do it. He says this was his purpose. This is the revelation of the glory of God, to suffer for sinners, to lay down his life for us, that we can be reconciled to him, that the impossible now might be possible. The thing made impossible by sin, we can now be reconciled. And he's willing to be humiliated, and his humiliation is actually an exaltation because it is the self-giving God who is the one who smiles mysteriously behind it all, that in his sufferings, we're safe. In his condemnation, we're saved. In his judgment, we're free from judgment. That's what's unfolding in front of us this week. I encourage you to enter into it, to embrace it, even if you've known it for years upon years. The mystery never gets old of the God who suffers in order to save, the one who was high, who became low. He does so as a mark and sign of his own glory to show you who he is, what he's really like. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to see Jesus. We know that we're prone to make him in our own image, but we, we see the one who shares our shame in order to be exalted, and that in his shame and humiliation, he is lifted up on high and he draws all men to himself, and that this is his glory. May we see who you truly are, the God who is for us, who suffers in order to save. Grant us to appreciate that, to relish it this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.